You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. Well, good morning. Hope everybody's well. If you have your Bible this morning, you can go ahead and open, um, open it to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 35. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35. We have a good bit to cover this morning, and so I'm not going to give you a tremendous amount of overlap, but for those of you that may be new, um, just to kind of bring you up to speed on, on kind of how we do things here at Covenant, is we do preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And so this is where we find ourselves in the book of Acts. Last week we saw the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas come to a close. Um, we saw a lot within that first journey, but it, they left from Antioch and came full circle after they made their rounds through parts of that region and came back to Antioch and, and were joyfully telling the people of Antioch that that sacrificed to send them out, that had been praying for them, that were well aware of who they were and what they were going to do. Um, they, they shared the stories of grace. They shared the stories of persecution. They, I'm sure, talked about the, um, the, the valleys and, and they talked about the peaks as well. And so when we pick up in Acts chapter 15, the setting is Antioch. And, and, and so it, it's still in that same region and, and the church is growing in the grace of God. And, and there's still some persecution, but this seems to be a season where um, it, it's not at least as intense. And these Christians are learning how to live in the communities that the Lord has placed them in. But 15 begins with I believe, a tremendous amount of clarity about what the issue at hand is. And so if you look down with me at verse 1, and, and before I start, I usually give you a little bit of a road map. Um, we're going to do as we have been. I'm, I'm going to read through a section at a time and give you a little bit of commentary along the way. And then we'll spend, I'm going to try to spend half my time on that this morning and the last half on some, some application for us. And so if you look down with me in Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, let's see. What, what the problem that arises is. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. All right, I'm going to pause um, because this is something new. This is different. And, and so these men, these brothers, these are believers. Everyone that we'll talk about this morning is under the category of those that have trusted Christ. Some of them were Gentiles, non-Jews, that have come to know the Lord, so they obviously don't have the Jewish background. Some of them are Jewish people who have all of the Jewish background, and they have come to know the Lord. So, so this is important to understand, that this is a problem that's come up within the church. Okay? It, it's not corruption, necessarily, like we saw in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. This is, this is just to be blunt with you, a, a doctrinal issue. And it's an important one. It's how you're saved. There's not a more important issue in the first century or today. Because these Jewish men have come from Judea and they've come to Antioch and they're telling the Gentile believers that essentially you can't even be a Christian unless you become a Jew first. And so out of all the persecution that we've seen, out of the corruption that we've seen, what we haven't seen is we haven't seen the gospel stall. Have you noticed that? In fact, we've tried to highlight the reality that the gospel continued to advance in spite of, and even in the middle of, just miraculously 
through the persecution, through the corruption, it seemed that the persecution was a, a, a catalyst, if you will, to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. But in Acts chapter 15, it, it stalls out. And that, that lets us know the importance of, of the issue at hand. And so let's, let's, let's move on in verses 2 through 5. It says, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, so, so there's, there's lots of intense conversation that's going on about how one is actually saved. It says, Some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so they have decided that they cannot agree. In Antioch, they cannot agree. So Paul and Barnabas take them and some of the others and they travel back to Jerusalem, which is where the central church is. This is where James and Peter, James we'll hear from him in a second. He is the um, actual leader of the church at this time. And so James and Peter are at this church in Jerusalem and they all make their way back to Jerusalem to basically hash this thing out. Okay, And it says in verse 3, So being sent on their way, by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So, Paul and Barnabas obviously thought this was worth the time and worth the debate. They had been discussing it at length back at Antioch, and they could not agree, and so they all make their way to Jerusalem. And verse 5 lets us know, just for clarity again, of what the issue is. The issue is, who is actually a Christian? And how does that happen? I don't think I have to emphasize anymore like the importance of Acts chapter 15. And in fact, the book of Acts has been sort of blazing a trail to, to this chapter. And really, what happens in this chapter is, is what is the catalyst for the future chapters and the fact that we have the true gospel today. So I really I can't emphasize enough the importance of Acts chapter 15. And as they make their way back to Jerusalem, they have the first doctrinal council this is a council and so they've all the church has come together with its leaders and you know, i'm sure there were you know lay people that were present as well and everybody was there and and they're having a conversation an open conversation that everybody can speak into as to this issue of do you have to become jew before you can be a christian okay all right so look in verse six in verse six through 21 what i'll do is is there's some addresses there's three different addresses that are given peter gives one Paul and Barnabas give one, and then James gives one. And we'll read them, and then I'll talk a little bit, and we'll go through each section at a time like that. So look with me in verse 6. It says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe... Oh, listen, friends. 
But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. After letting others discuss, it seems that Peter's had enough. And, and he has clout. I appreciate the fact that with the clout that he has and the type of leader that he was, and we, it's well documented the personality that this man's had. He, he has a track record of being quick to speak and slower to listen. But, but he gives them time to speak, and then Peter stands up, and um, as, as one of the leaders, his voice matters. But his emphasis essentially is, is that the Lord has done this. And that's a really just bold down, simplified version. The Lord has done this. The Lord has welcomed the Gentiles in through Jesus Christ. And he says, the Lord made a choice. And this is what he's saying there. The Lord sovereignly made a choice that I, speaking of Peter, that, that I would be the voice. Remember Acts chapter 10 when he goes to Cornelius, that I would be the voice, that I would see with my own eyes the same Holy Spirit that fell in Acts chapter 2 and filled the Jewish believers fall on the Gentile believers. And they are genuinely Christian. And so this isn't, according to Peter, a Paul thing. This isn't a Barnabas thing. This, this is a God thing. And then I think he wide, wisely adds their inability to adhere to the law. I really appreciate what he's saying there. Because it forces all of us to take an honest look, not at what's on the outside, but what's on the inside. And so he's confessing in a context as one of the leaders, hey, hey, let's be real. We've never been able to do this. It's not sustainable. And what the law has done is clearly show that to be true. And then Peter has a mic drop moment. And if you're interested in these kind of facts, this, this is the last thing that Peter says in the book of Acts. In verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Moving on, verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now, we're not given as much detail about what Paul and Barnabas shared, but, but it seems that they let Peter and James, as we'll see in a second, handle the conflict portion of the meeting. And so Peter and James are sort of steering this thing in regards to the doctrinal matter that's at hand. What Paul and Barnabas do is they basically say, and I think in a very Old Testament way because of the language they use, speaking of all of the signs and wonders, in the Jewish mind and for the Jewish ear, they think of things like the Exodus. They think of how God has, has rescued them multiple times from the hands of their enemy. And so essentially Paul and Barnabas' testimony is, hey, just listen, like we've seen this with our own eyes. God has done for them the same thing that He's done for us. So he would take them back to recall a physical salvation and exodus out of Egypt. And he said, what God has done for us physically, He's done for them spiritually through signs and wonders and through His power, He's brought them out and He's saved them. Then moving on, verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for His name. 
And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. If you underline or highlight, this is what he's after. He's he's reading from Amos, um, Amos the prophet, which is a prophecy of judgment. But it's in this. And he could have recalled multiple places where the prophet spoke about and prophesied about the Gentiles coming in. But this is why he mentions this, if you want to highlight it. He says, And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old, therefore, my judgment, this is back to what James is saying, therefore, my judgment, based on what he just read or quoted from Amos, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This James is the brother of Jesus. And, and as I mentioned, he is at this point the leader of the church. And, and using one of the many Old Testament passages that prophesy that God will bring um, a people for himself out of every nation, James comes to the conclusion, and really he, he has the final say, if you will. There's a reason that he speaks last and, and, and that he's the one that sort of directs the application. So what are the action items out of this? Um, it's because James is the leader. And so James says, essentially, um, I agree. There's no way that we can deny that this has been God's plan all along to save a people or to bring a people for Himself out of every tribe, tongue, and nation, out of all of the Gentiles that are spread across the earth. And and so James suggests that they write a letter. And so look at verse 22. And we'll talk through the letter. It says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. So, So here's the letter that these that are appointed take back to Antioch and back to those Gentile believers. Because listen, brothers and sisters, the gospel has been preserved at this point. Okay, so, so this letter is about the preservation of the gospel. The gospel has been preserved. Praise the Lord that Paul and Barnabas understood the seriousness of this conflict. I mean, think of, think of what would it mean for us? What would it mean for um, every generation after this had Paul and Barnabas just been like, oh, just kind of let them do their thing. It's not that big of a deal. You know, if they want to think that way, just let them think that way. Praise the Lord that they saw the issue being um, one that needed to be addressed, and it needed to be addressed clearly, and they need to leave with clarity. And they've, they've left with clarity. So, so this letter is about doctrinal clarity. It's about how is someone saved, but it's also about preserving unity at this point. All right, so look with me in verse 23. It says, with the following letter, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, I love this, don't miss it, to the brothers. <laughs> so now they're acknowledging just in the greeting, hey, we are Jewish And we're brothers, you are Gentiles, and guess what? You're brothers and sisters as well. It says, to the brothers who are the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. That's the letter. Are you disappointed? I mean, just a little bit. Do you, do you read, honestly, like I, when I read this letter, I mean, there's a part of me that goes, you don't even mention circumcision. Like, like it, it's, it's a little bit confusing. And, and friends, and brothers and sisters in Christ, like there has been a lot of ink spilled <laughs> over this letter. There's been a lot of things written and a lot of conversations over the years about, I mean, these requirements. Did you notice the requirements? We're like, hey, I thought we were talking about grace here. Like, bring up the requirements maybe in, in the next letter. I don't pretend to have the corner market on what's going on here, but I'm going to give you my best shot at it. The biggest surprise to me is not that circumcision isn't mentioned, because I think we know enough about the context to know that it would have been implied. Like Everybody knows what the issue is at hand. The biggest surprise to me is the requirement section. Because it seems, here's what it seems, the safest place to land is that the intent was not only to restore the gospel, but also to restore unity. In order, for, in order for these Gentile believers and Jewish believers to cohabitate, to dwell together in harmony, they were going to have to take seriously what everybody brings to the table. They're going to have to care about their history. They're going to have to care about their traditions. And, and in Jewish culture and context, most of you know, like things like what they eat and what they drink comes from the Mosaic law and has great intentionality and tremendous conviction wrapped around it. Now, what's been preserved is those things aren't the gospel, but those things are a reality and have been for hundreds of years in their lives. And so the Gentiles, if, if they're going to be sitting at the same table, they're going to be sitting at the same dinner table as Christians now, brothers and sisters in Christ, in order for this unity to be restored, these requirements need to be thought about. They have to be considered. In fact, I want to just quickly show you a few other New Testament passages where the Apostle Paul deals with a few of these things. The first one is in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul says, this is, this is so practical, friends. All things are lawful. If you have an NIV, it says all things are beneficial. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And listen to what he says. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And so, again, there are these categories for us that we might would classify as like gray areas, that we have the freedom in Christ to eat certain things and drink certain things. And it's, it's not a matter anymore, according to the council from Jerusalem, it's not a matter anymore of salvation, but, but brother to brother, sister to sister, brother to sister, sister to brother, that there has to be a concern of, about the other one. Next scripture where Paul speaks of this is in Romans 14. I encourage you to go back and read this whole chapter. It's very informative. And 1 Corinthians 10. Paul says to the church at Rome, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. That's why they're weak. Anyway. But, <laughs> let, 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 not the one, let not the one 
who, who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has, listen to his language, welcomed them. Philippians 2.4. I like to think of this as the banner that flies over Christian living. It's so simple. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Again, I, I don't know for sure if that's what James is getting at. But this is, I think, a safe landing place. Because of what the rest of Scripture speaks to, how Jews and Gentiles, how difficult it could be for them to live together. And, and if they weren't concerned about the well-being of the other under these matters of Christian freedom, then, then they were just going to offend and offend and offend and offend. And, and you could stand on the other side of that and go, well, I'm free in Christ to do this. I can do what I want to do. And what Paul would say is that's incredibly arrogant, even though you're right. <laughs> you, you can live in a certain way and still be a Christian. But when brothers and sisters in Christ come, to the, come together, there's supposed to be a concern and a care for the other. And so in 30 through, uh, through 35, what we get um, the response to this letter. It says in verse 30, So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others. So, so the gospel has been preserved. And at this point, unity is on the way. If not already, they've taken a big step in unity being restored. And so just three things to notice in the response to this particular letter. There should be a slide. There it is. They were encouraged. They were encouraged by the fact that now there's a totally different atmosphere. Brothers and sisters, that, that's one aspect of this. When, when there is a gospel that's preached that's not the true gospel, if, if you've believed the true gospel, you, you feel that. Like you know that. Like there's a weight and there's a burden that's sort of just in the air. It's in the eyes of the people. You hear it from the voice of the preachers. So they were encouraged. Encouragement often leads to celebration. They, they rejoiced. And third, they continued in the gospel. They continued to share the gospel. They continued to preach the gospel. They continued to teach the gospel. Most importantly, they continued to believe the gospel. The clear issue this text deals with is the gospel. Every generation... Every generation has had the responsibility to preserve the gospel. Because in every generation, and ours is no different, the gospel is under a full-blown assault. And so I want to spend the rest of our time answering this question so that we're clear. And, and, and so that we understand, it, to the best we can, how someone is saved. Because that's the question. How are we justified? How are we made right with God? So I want you to follow me through a sequence of passages that I think make this crystal clear. Romans chapter 3, verses 20 through 24. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. 
I mean, then I'm going to slow down here, okay? Because I, I know, I, like, I want us, I want to be sure that, that we're clear. But for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so what the law had the ability to do was expose our inability to keep it. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So, so, so the reality for us outside of this alien or foreign righteousness, if you will, is that we are under the burden of the law. If we're outside of Jesus Christ, if we haven't trusted Christ, we are 100% under the burden of the law. And John 3.36 says that God's wrath remains on us. And so that's the reality outside of Jesus Christ. But verse 20, I think it's 1, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus... The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justification that is being made right with God doesn't come through law keeping. And so if you're a note taker, like this is a takeaway from Acts 15. Justification, being made right with God, being saved doesn't come through law keeping. Next scripture, Romans chapter 3, verse 27 and 28. It says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Well, how is boasting excluded? It's because, well, my salvation didn't happen as a reward for my efforts. I didn't earn it. So there's no way for me to beat my chest about my salvation because I didn't earn it. I could have never earned it. And he says that it is excluded by, by what kind of law? By, by a law of works? No. But by the law of what? What does it say? Faith. For we hold that one is justified, made right with God, saved, a Christian, by faith, apart from works of the law. Romans chapter 4, 1 through 5. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? And this is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Okay, Genesis 15.3. Abraham believed God. Look, this is the way salvation has always been. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works. Our legalistic hearts are going to flare up right here. Now to the one who works. His wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness. Justification doesn't come through law keeping. You see how this is relevant in Acts 15? Well, they have to be circumcised. Like, they have to do this work this physical work they have to keep the law of moses if they're going to call themselves christians it's a big time issue it's a big time issue for us how are we saved how do you answer that next we do not have a righteousness of our own so justification doesn't come through the law second we do not have a righteousness of our own in romans chapter 3 verses 9 and 10 Paul says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, 
None is righteous, no, not one. That stings. I, I mean, that stings. That, that's confrontational. That confronts me. That says, Hank, you're not as good as you think you are. Whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile or you're whatever in between, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All are on a level playing field when it comes to the glory of God and, and, and how we relate to that, that we are all fallen enemies of God. And there's not one of us that's righteous. And brothers and sisters, as we saw earlier, this righteousness cannot be manifested from our own works. We aren't able to produce righteousness. It might look good in human eyes, but it's filthy rags according to the prophet Isaiah and to the eyes of the Lord. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. The Apostle Paul again, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss. Everything he's talking about here was his, his pharisaical Jewish life. And he was all in, buddy. All in. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, here it is, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through what? Faith in Christ Jesus. The righteousness, of the righteousness from God that depends on what? Faith. So again, Paul denies and Paul affirms. He denies that the righteousness he needs in the presence of God is something that comes from his own law keeping. He says that's not the way it is, but he affirms that the righteousness he needs is found only in Christ. So again, not from law keeping, but from faith. Faith alone. Lastly, Jesus plus anything is nothing. Jesus plus anything is nothing. Galatians. Now, it, it, fascinating to read the letter to the Galatians beside Acts chapter 15. Because that's the context. Fascinating. Fascinating. I, I, I challenge you to do that. It's, it's short. It'll take you 20, 30 minutes to read Galatians. But the context of Galatians is where we are in Acts right now. Okay? But in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, the Apostle Paul says, I'm astonished. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now listen, you might well go, oh, there's another gospel? No. Verse 7, not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you. These are these Judaizers that have come up we just read about. There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But listen to what he says here. But even if we, man this is strong, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be, the Greek word is anathema, accursed, destroyed. And so here we see some inside. This is... This is the reason I think Paul didn't say much at the Jerusalem council, because he'd said a lot in Antioch. A lot. He says, if an angel comes, are y'all with me on that? Like, an angel from heaven comes and preaches to you a gospel different than the gospel that I preach to you, he should be cursed. As we have said before, 
So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be, and he says it again, anathema. Let him be accursed. There has to be, friends, listen, please. We have to be serious about the gospel. We can't be wrong about the gospel. We have to be able to recognize a false gospel. We have to be able to recognize it in our own hearts and minds when the, our, our own self-righteousness and legalism tries to creep in because this is our default. Our default is to try to earn this thing. Our default is to feel better about our salvation because of what we've done or what we're doing. And the world is still 100 miles an hour in the direction of trying to bring about a different gospel. Galatians chapter 2, verses 20 through 21. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. See, that's the argument. The argument is, see, when the gospel is preached, when the, when the grace of the gospel is preached, it, it, our, like, even as a preacher, I almost want to give this caveat of, but you've you got to work. There's, it feels risky. It feels risky for me to preach to my children. If I'm honest, the grace of the gospel, because I'm like, I mean, like, but, but you still got to do some stuff. But if we're going to be faithful to preach the grace of the gospel, it's got to be all Him. Friends, it's all or nothing here. Jesus plus anything is nothing. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness, if righteousness were through the law, how much more plain could He be than Christ died for no purpose? If we could have done it, Jesus Christ would not have done it. We have zero ability to save ourselves. We have zero ability to produce this righteousness. And God, in an infinite act of grace and mercy, came down and put on flesh and lived the life that we could not live. And what was credited to Him from our account was the wickedness and the punishment and the shame and the guilt and the condemnation that we deserved. That's what came out of our account onto the back of Jesus. What came out of the account of Christ onto us is His righteousness. What an exchange. Here you go. Here's my sin and shame. Here you go. Here's, here's my righteousness. You're now a daughter. You're now a son. We're co-heirs in this family. What I have, you have. As sure as I'm seated at the right hand of the Father, you're coming. You're mine. In a totally free gift of grace. This is astonishing. In, in Galatians 5, 1-4, he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not... Listen, here's what I think we really need to zero in here. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Okay? Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be... I mean, no advantage to you. Jesus plus anything is nothing. 
If you accept just circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Now, now that's astonishing because he says, look, you can't just pick one. You can't just pick one. If, if, if you're going to have to do one, then you have to understand that you're in burden to it all. And so if you choose to rely just a little bit on law keeping as a way of getting justified or saved, as a way of getting into a position where God is 100% for you, if, if you're just relying a little bit on works, Paul says, then Christ is of no advantage to you. Essentially what you're saying is you don't need Him. If we decide to go the route of salvation by works, then we have to go the route of salvation by perfection. You signing up? Not even. So there are two ways, or two options. Let me, for clarity, say that. T two options. First is this, the way of law-keeping which requires perfection. That, that, that's one of the options. That, that's what's, what, what's crept into this region of Galatia and Antioch and all these regions of, of these Gentile believers is the way of law-keeping which requires perfection. And, and the second option is the way of faith which depends on Christ's perfection. Now, I, I don't know how to break it down any more clearly than that. Like, like that's what we're looking at. Because remember, everybody in this context is saying, yes, Jesus... Oh yeah, Jesus died, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus resurrected, Jesus ascended. They're, they're saluting, they're acknowledging all of that. There are no atheists in this crowd. These are people that are adding to what Christ did. But Jesus plus anything is nothing. Christ is of no advantage to you. If we're trusting Christ for a righteous standing, we cannot mix into that a way of justification with one ounce of effort to establish our own righteousness. These two options are diametrically opposed. They're not on the same planet. They are opposites. And they cannot cohabitate if you find yourself in a church, or I'll, let's just, I'll be like Paul here. If anybody is ever on this stage preaching a gospel different than the one that you've heard this morning, leave. Leave and go find another church. But find one that's preaching the gospel. To be justified means more than to be declared not guilty. It means actually to be declared righteous before God. Justification is more than just not being guilty. It's that we have been made righteous before God. It means that God has given or charged the guilt of our sin to His Son and imputed or credited Christ's righteousness to us. And I really believe that there's a bigger chance that the congregations that I will be speaking to this morning the vast majority of you in this congregation are yes to Jesus. But there's a bigger chance that people sitting in our pews and in pews across this country have added something. 
probably most of you have trusted Christ in some form or fashion or in some capacity, but there is a really good chance that some of us maybe are not fully trusting in Jesus Christ. There's a really good chance that some of us maybe are, are still depending on our own efforts and our own works and, and, and our own righteousness in order to be sure and secure and when we stand before the Lord one day. So what do you say? Does Christianity to you feel like more of a burden than rest? There's a good chance you've misunderstood the gospel. I admitted to you already that it's hard for me to say that it's Christ and Christ alone. Even though I know how wicked I am. I still default into wanting to earn it. I just want to earn it. Like I want to, I want to add a boy. I want to beat my chest. But the older I get, ironically, the older that I get, the more I realize how much I can't beat my chest. And I've said this for years, but as a young man, I really felt like strong faith was going to look different when I got older. It looks more like dependence. It looks more like weakness than having big old strong spiritual muscles. It looks like me understanding more and more and more and more what we just preached has to be true or I'm not making it. And so friends, if you haven't totally trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ this morning, I plead with you to. I plead with you to place your full dependence on Him for salvation. Let's pray. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.